Well, if you will join me in Ephesians chapter 5, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. We are in chapter 5 this morning. We will be looking at verses 6 through 14 in the blue ESV Bibles. You can find it on page 978. The title of our sermon this morning is Children of Light, and our key words for our worshipers in training are light, darkness, and expose. Well, in 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the kidnapping of one of the worst of the Holocaust's masterminds, a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, He had spent many years in hiding in South America. He left Germany immediately after World War II to avoid the punishment for his crimes. But through their intelligence sources, the Israelis found him and captured him and transferred him back to Israel to face trial. And during Eichmann's trial, the prosecutors called up uh, several people who were held in concentration camps as prisoners as witnesses against him. Uh, One of the men who served as a witness was a short, skinny man uh, named Yehel Denur. Now, Denur was a prisoner in Auschwitz for two years uh, before um, all of the survivors were liberated in January of 1945. Throughout that time period, all of Denur's family members and friends had been killed by the Nazis under the leadership of Adolf Eichmann. On his day to testify, Denur entered the courtroom and he stared at Eichmann, who sat in a booth behind bulletproof glass for everyone to see. The man who had murdered his friends, his family, who had personally executed many Jews who presided over the slaughter of millions more, as the eyes of the two men met, a victim and a murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell completely silent It was filled with tension. It was filled with anticipated confrontation. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's fascinating. What would he say? As he sat down to speak of this man and all that he had done, what would he have to say? How would he respond? Well, nobody expected what they saw. Denier began to sob and he collapsed on the floor. What happened? Was he overcome with hatred for Eichmann? Maybe the discussion of everything that had happened before brought back terrible memories and he couldn't handle them. Was it it seeing Eichmann as the evil man that he was face to face for the first time since he had been freed? It was actually none of these reasons. Later, Denur was interviewed on 60 Minutes by Mike Wallace and and Wallace showed him a video clip of the, the trial and he asked him, what happened? What were your feelings at that point? Was it post-traumatic stress? Was it just that you were, you were filled with rage to see this man? What happened with you? And his response, I believe, came as an incredible shock to Mike Wallace. Denure explained that he collapsed and was agonizing over the fact that Eichmann wasn't the demonic personification of evil that he had expected. Instead, he was really an ordinary man just like everybody else. He said, when I walked in and I saw him, I suddenly realized that he was no demon. He was no Superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me. And suddenly I became terrified about myself. 
I saw that I am capable of the same things. I am exactly like he. Mike Wallace turns to the camera and he asks the audience, how was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster? A madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Denura's final words in that interview were, Eichmann is in all of us. Hannah Arendt was covering the trial. She was a journalist, and she wrote an essay called Eichmann in Jerusalem, Report on the Banality of Evil. And she made the same point. She says that what we want to do in order to defend ourselves is to say about the Nazis that they must have been monsters. They must have been sub-people. They weren't like us in any way whatsoever. They must have been monsters to be able to do what they did. Uh, That way, we could say that we would never do that. But her point was that by saying they're they're sub-people, we're doing exactly what they did to the Jews. So no, they're not sub-people. They're just people, just like us. And we don't want to admit that we're capable of, and the seeds are in our hearts already for such evil. And and if they are watered and fertilized properly, that we could do the exact same thing. Do you believe that? I hope that you do, because it's exactly what the Bible teaches us. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to reveal to us a very sober reality. For a person in their sin, it's not just that they're, they're basically good and do a few bad things from time to time. It's not that their intentions are good, but they mess up every now and then. No, he says, for those who are not in the light of Christ, they are darkness. And he gives us some important warnings about our interactions with those who love darkness. So let's look at our text and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now recall last week we looked at verses 1 through 5 and Paul's exhortations regarding the responsibility of believers to be imitators of God. That's what he told us in verse 1. And our motivation ought to be that we are the beloved children of God. And then Paul gave us some examples of what that is to look like. Abstaining from sexual immorality, having pure and edifying speech, and not engaging in filthy or immoral conversation or crude joking. Paul just keeps giving us exhortations and examples of what it means to put off the old fallen self, the corrupt person who's dead in trespasses and sins, and put on the new self, 
who is alive in Christ and to be lived to the glory of God in all things. So Paul continues along those lines and he offers us some warnings and also an exhortation regarding some certain obligations. So the first thing for us to see this morning is a warning. In verses 6 through 10, he shows us to not be deceived by the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul is drawing a contrast here between believers, those who are in Christ, and what he's calling the sons of disobedience. Now, who are these sons of disobedience? It's those, in context here, who are primarily identified by their sexual immorality. Remember we said last week that Ephesus was a city that was constantly bombarded with sexual immorality. It was a city that revolved around the worship of the false goddess of sex named Diana. And everywhere the Ephesians turned, everywhere they looked in their own community, they saw one form or another of lust of the flesh being indulged in by the people. Everywhere they looked, they, people were regularly and openly flaunting their immorality. Back in chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul said that the sons of disobedience were seeking to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. These are people who are driven and motivated by their own lusts. In their fallen minds, they are filled with evil desires and insatiable sexual cravings in their sinful bodies. They do vile and detestable things in the pursuit of their fleshly satisfaction. Quite simply, there are people with unrestrained and never fulfilled desires. They are in bondage to their sexual immorality. They can't and do not want to escape it. They are slaves to their cravings and their hearts and their minds are constantly and restlessly seeking for the next immoral and detestable experience. So Paul now comes to the believers and he's saying, look, these people are everywhere. They're they're all around you. He could very easily be saying these things to us, couldn't he? I mean, it takes a grand total of about zero seconds in our culture to find that which is perverse and sexually immoral. It's everywhere. It's constantly in our face, and the sons of disobedience in our day and in our culture are tireless in their efforts to ensure that there's a fundamental shift, that there's an unparalleled immoral revolution. For us, just like the Ephesians, everything Paul tells us that we're not to do is getting turned on its head. And it's done every day, everywhere you turn, and it's being encouraged in every way possible. It's not just that they're after you either. It's your children and your children's children. The sons of disobedience will not rest until the only thing considered wrong at all is to call evil, evil. It is to these that the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And so what do we need to do? Paul simply warns us, do not be deceived. Their words are empty, their desires are detestable, their deeds are wicked. Do not be deceived. It's all too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world, to succumb to the way of thinking and all the ways of doing life and all the behaviors that accompany our cultural surroundings. 
And when this happens what, with believers, whatever is accepted from the culture, from the world, becomes slowly but becomes acceptable to the church. Now look, it's not always fun to be the person or the people who stand in the face sometimes of very intense opposition and ridicule and attacks because of your refusal to back away from what God has said to be true in His Word. It's very tempting in many situations to want to fit in, to not want to be the voice of truth and reason. It's, it's very easy to want to mold our sexual ethics, not around the truth of Scripture, but around the desires of the world. Because, particularly in our culture, sex has become an axiom for humanity. It is who we are, and that's what we worship and talk about. And nobody likes being attacked. Nobody inherently wants to be disliked or maligned. And so if we're willing to give our ear to the sons of disobedience, if we're willing to be influenced by their empty words, we will very easily give in to their perversions because it doesn't just make life easier. It makes us friends all of a sudden with those who are enemies of God to the extent that we are indulging in the very same thing. So when the country is celebrating something like homosexual marriage, when the country is applauding a man who wants to claim that he's a woman, when a country is saying that we need to let boys and girls decide whether or not they're boys or girls, when we insist on allowing people to use whatever bathroom or locker room that they want, when a, when a country has now court cases seeking to lit- legitimize polygamy and pedophilia. In fact, our neighbors to the north in Canada just last week legalized bestiality as a protected sexual activity. It's a whole lot easier to go with the flow to join in the course, to not say anything at all about it because you will be attacked. You will be accused of being hateful and bigoted. You will be ridiculed. You will be mocked. You will be treated poorly. You will never have the best assumed about you. But there's a massive problem here with going along with it and just accepting it and never saying a word about it. Paul says right there in verse 6, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen, this, this isn't just a matter of thinking something is icky and unnatural. This is a matter of eternal death. It's a matter of the wrath of God. This is a matter of eternal torment in hell. So often Christians are accused of only talking about issues of sexuality all the time. And that's, that's not true. It's just that this issue is always being put in front of us and thrown at us to respond to time and time again. But here's why we do talk about it at all. Because we love our neighbors and we don't want to see them die and go to hell. Brothers and sisters, that's it. If you love your neighbor, whatever their sexually immoral pursuit in life is, you will not want them to continue in it because the consequences are everlasting. So Paul exhorts us in verse 7, Therefore, do not become partners with them. The consequences are so serious, we must not become partners with the sons of disobedience in their sinful behavior. We cannot share in their disobedience. We cannot partner with non-believers in their sin. And then he reminds us in verse 8, For at one time, you... We're darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice this. Notice, notice how he says it. For at one time you were darkness. He doesn't say you were in darkness or you walked in darkness. No, he gets directly to the heart and says you were darkness. It wasn't an environmental condition. It was your heart. It was you. See, Paul's saying human beings do not just do deeds of darkness. They don't just do bad things. They are darkness in their innermost being. That's human nature. In other words, Eichmann is in all of us. Denur was right. It's a, it's a powerful reminder from Paul. Hey, if you're a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, you were once just like them. You are darkness. You were Eichmann. You were wicked to the core because that's what it means to be a human being apart from Christ. And that's what the sons of disobedience do and what they are. They're all Eichmann. So don't partner with them because you aren't darkness anymore. You are light. So live in the light. Walk as children of the light. Brothers and sisters, we are united to Christ in inseparable eternal union. But before God did that, before he brought us out from being darkness and doing darkness... And into the light, you and I were Eichmann. I was just talking to a lady this week, and and she said to me, why do all these terrorist attacks keep happening? How are these people that evil in the world that they can't just let groups of people gather together for a holiday without feeling like they need to kill all of them? And I said, because they haven't been changed by the gospel. And every single person outside of Christ is filled with that very same capacity to do evil right alongside them. It's what I said earlier. As soon as we say we're not like them, we've given them a different category to cling to as a person. An excuse that is different from what the Bible says. They're not subhuman. They're not extra evil. They're alienated from God. They're living in darkness. They have no hope of change apart from Christ. And everyone else who lives as darkness apart from Christ has the same evil capacity. Without Jesus, we are all Eichmann. Now, that's an impossible argument to convince a non-believer of because inevitably you will hear from them all that they are good people. But we know what true regeneration is from what a truly changed heart and nature looks like for the believer. And what the Bible says is that none are righteous and that no one can call themselves good. That's absolutely true. Because what God demands and what man does are light years away from one another. And so Paul's exhortation for the believer is to challenge us to compare our personal lives with the lives of the sons of disobedience. When you look at your own life, when you, when you consider what your life looks like compared to the sons of disobedience, is there any difference at all? There should be. Why? Verse 9, because the fruit of light is found in all that is good, and right and true. If you're seeking to live a life faithful unto God, you will desire all that is good and right and true, and the fruit of that will not be darkness, it will be light. 
And listen, the only way any of this is present in our lives is through a supernatural work of God. Goodness, righteousness, and truth, they can only mean anything to us if we are in Christ. Romans 3.12, no one does good, not even one. If these things are evident in my life, if I have the fruit of light showing in my life, it's clear evidence of a supernatural work of God because they simply do not exist apart from Him. And if you're a child of the light, your works will be a reflection of it. And so quite simply, Paul says in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We have the light of God's Spirit shining in our lives that ought to be visible by the fruit of our lives. And if we want to know what it means to be children of the light, we must learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And how do we know what is pleasing to the Lord? We can only know what He has revealed to us. And He has revealed Himself to us and what is pleasing to Him through His Word. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the main reasons it's so important for us to take the time to understand as much of God's Word as possible so we can know as much as is possible about God. The Word of God works inseparably with the Spirit of God on us and through His Word. And He changes us and He he makes us more like what God wants us to be, that we can love what is good. We can can reject that which is evil. We can hate falsehood. We can set our minds on what is true. We can be changed when we are not in conformity to God's will. We can set our interests primarily on what pleases the One who has saved us. Do you want to follow the Father in that which is good and right and true? Then know His Word that you might be able to discern what is good and right and true. And ask God to make you able to walk in those things, to continually reject falsehood. The falsehood of the sons of disobedience. Because they're going to spend their lives trying to turn your heart away from God toward the works of darkness. But God, through His Word, will continually remind you of the folly of turning the other way. In fact, Paul goes on in our second point this morning to give us some instruction on what we do when we encounter the works of the sons of disobedience. We must expose and avoid the shameful works of darkness. He points that out to us in verses 11 and 12. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul was actually using something of a, of a horticultural reference when he was dealing with darkness and light. Very simply, he was saying that if there's proper light, there will be growth and there will be fruit. And if there's darkness, there will only be deadness and there will, there will not be any fruit or uh, anything done that's productive. Now, it's a bit of an interesting way for Paul here to deal with darkness because he tells us two things that seem at first to maybe be a bit contradictory to one another. He tells us to have nothing to do with darkness, but now he's telling us to expose what's in the darkness. And here's the problem that Paul's getting at. We have to simultaneously not be tempted by and influenced by and coerced by the sons of disobedience and the deeds of darkness. However, we must also expose what's going on there and shed light on that which is only continually in darkness. 
So just think about our friends, for example, that we support in Atlanta, Bob and Kathy Self, missionaries in Atlanta, now in their 60s, after 40-plus years of faithful pastoral ministry uh, for Bob. Now they're living in the heart of one of the worst parts of Atlanta. It's fraught with drugs and violence and prostitution and fatherlessness, a whole lot of pain and brokenness and sin. And on Friday nights, Bob goes into the locker rooms of strip clubs where there are men, and Kathy goes into the locker rooms of strip clubs where there are women, and they go out onto the streets where there are prostitutes and drug dealers, and they talk to all of them about Jesus. That's a dark place to be. And I don't know about you, but I'd really have to pray a lot about whether or not that's something I could even do. You could think, if you know any history of the wonderful missionary Amy Carmichael, she struggled to even raise support for her work. She was, she was exposing the darkness of temple prostitution of children in India. But in England, in her day, she wasn't even allowed to say that or talk about that. It was completely improper to even mention it. So getting support was very difficult for her because she couldn't even talk about what her work was for people to understand. So how is it we can have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness while also exposing them? Well, first, we need to be aware of the context. When Paul writes in verse 11 to take no part in, he's using a word that means to not have partnership in, to not partake of. In other words, we are not to join in. And it needs to be very clear that our task isn't to promote or to celebrate or to involve ourselves in the darkness, but to bring light and exposure to what's going on. The temptation for Christians is to expose darkness. And in doing so is to forget that this is exposure and not joining in. Then the, the real task at hand is just the exposing And remember what we said earlier, it's really easy to not want to put ourselves in that situation and have to stand for truth. That's the easy thing to do is to just go along. It's easy to be sucked in by the the entertainment and the ways of speaking and talking about the things that go on in the darkness in our own context without ever realizing that they don't even have a place in the life of the child of the light at all. One of the best ways for us to know if we're actually being consumed by the darkness instead of exposing it is whether or not we're actually willing in the midst of it to call evil, evil, and to call sin, sin. If we're reluctant to affirm what God has said in His Word based on the context that we're in, perhaps we're trying to hide in the darkness instead of stepping out and shining a light on it ourselves. Another thing we need to consider is our motive. Why would we mention a particular matter at all? Whether our actions lead us to enjoy or to expose the darkness leads us to a question of motive. Here's the question. It gets us back to verse 10. Am I seeking to do that which pleases the Lord? Before I set out to expose any darkness at all, that's the first question I need to ask. Is what I'm doing and the way I'm doing it and my desire to do it all consistent with me wanting to please the Lord? Or am I looking for a fight? Am I indulging my flesh? Am I just angry about something and I want to get it off my chest? 
Is my motive to make much of Christ and to honor Him and see His name made great in the world, or am I after my own fame and applause? And with the ease of saying things on Twitter and Facebook and a blog and a text message, we really need to be careful here. To think, to pray, to discern, to not just type and hope it doesn't blow up too big. We need to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We need to ask ourselves, what is your motive when you want to expose something in the darkness? You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, Paul goes on with this in verses 13 and 14. We'll see in our last point this morning. He teaches us that we are to do as Jesus taught us, to let your light shine before others, that they might see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. What will we be using to expose the darkness? What are the instruments, the tools of exposing darkness? That's what Paul's driving at here. What composes the light? What's the light source that comes into the darkness? We've identified it already in verse 9. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. So here's what that tells me. In order that I am able to expose the darkness, I don't need to live in the darkness to learn about everything in it. I don't have to stick my head down into the sewer to know that it stinks, right? There are many Christians who want to tell you that in order to expose the darkness, you have to become familiar with the darkness in such a way that you can eventually, at some point, have a platform in the midst of it to, uh, to speak truth. But Paul seems to be telling us that we don't expose the darkness by becoming acquainted, as, as acquainting it as we can with the darkness, but instead by radiating the holiness of God that really shows everything more powerfully. And, and we'll see the stark contrast with the fruitlessness of the darkness to the holiness of God shining forth through His people. And when you walk into a hotel room for the first time, you don't leave the light off and go in and try and fill around and get a good sense of where everything is before you turn the light on because you want to be acquainted before you move around. That's silly. We are to be faithful to the Lord. And our faithful marriages, our lives of rejecting sexual immorality, our being good stewards of what God has given us, our encouraging and edifying speech, the way we parent and train our children, all of this will do far more to expose the fruitless deeds of evil than to partner with the world in its pursuit of darkness. Listen, there are a lot of things that go on in the world in the darkness that I wish I knew nothing about. There are things that go in the darkness that that sadly we have to talk to our kids about, and we shouldn't have to, but we have to, but they're too shameful to even mention, as Paul says, but they're, they're all around us. They come up time and time again, several things I've even mentioned today. But if we could be so blessed to remain innocent in terms of not even having to even know the deeds of darkness, we can have a very powerful witness that does not require us becoming an expert in the matters of Satan. We need to consider the danger. We need to be aware. Evil is powerful. The sons of darkness are persuasive, and we are not bulletproof. The warning comes again and again in Scripture. Be careful. Take heed lest you fall. 
Well, in verse 14, Paul quotes what appears to be an early Christian hymn, and he's calling for a resurrection. It's sort of similar, he's saying something similar to us when we say that someone needs a wake-up call if they're oblivious to the consequences of their their actions. Um, It's Paul's warning to the church. He's saying, don't fall asleep on this matter. Know what, it, know what it is after, uh, know, know what's going on and what you're going after as a child of the light. And if you're stepping into the darkness, know what you're stepping into and don't get stooped into a slumber. It's like the movies when the, when the hero confronts the evil villain and they're face to face and for some reason they always have to have a sit down chat before they fight. And the villain slips the hero a cocktail, and again, for some unknown reason, he always drinks it. And he didn't know there was a sedative in the glass that's going to put him to sleep. That's not smart. If you're ever a superhero, don't drink it. Whatever he gives you, don't do that. It's going to put you to sleep. You're going to walk into the darkness to fight the battle, to triumph over evil, to make much of good... And you're put to sleep. And you wake up with your hands tied behind your back. And some other superhero has to come and rescue you. But that's, here's Paul's point in all of this. Be alert. Be vigilant. Don't fall for the tactics of the sons of disobedience. You'll be duped into doing something that's going to put you asleep. Wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Be alert. Be alive. Don't let them attack you in a way that you won't be aware of. But Paul doesn't end there in his song. He ends with a great promise. He says, if you do this, Christ will shine on you. When you live as though the darkness has real danger and you expose it without being tempted by it and swayed by it, you will make Christ's light shine all the more radiant. And for the children of light, there is no greater blessing If you are a child of light, your highest aim will be to make Christ shine to all the world. Listen, it's it's really easy to think about all these things and be really convicted about where we stand and if we're being influenced by the darkness. It's really easy to look at our own hearts and say, yeah, Eichmann's in there. He's there. But that's not the whole story for the Christian. We were darkness. That's what he says. You were darkness. Now... You're children of light. Imagine a girl. She's poor. She's plain. She doesn't have a penny. By the world's standards, not very attractive. But a great prince falls in love with her. He puts his love upon her. He takes her to be his wife. And in the great wedding ceremony, he brings her to himself and makes a vow. What happens in that ceremony? They're united. What does that mean? It means the minute before that vow, before they are legally united, she's poor. And then the minute after that vow, immediately she's rich. She's got money. She's got money to burn. Not only that, she is decked out in the most beautiful jewels and the finest garments in the world that money can buy. So though in herself she's plain, she is a vision of loveliness. You see, in herself, she's poor and she's plain. That's all she's ever known. 
But in the love of her prince, she's light. She's radiant. She's beautiful. She's wealthy. And that, brothers and sisters, is just a dim hint of what it looks like to be a Christian. Paul says you have to keep these things all in balance. If you live a life only filled with the guilt of Eichmann is in me and I am him, you're not going to live the Christian life you should. You'll constantly be giving into temptation because you have a mindset that says, I myself need to get better and try harder and get further down the road. But on the other hand, if you say, well, I'm fine, I'm accepted, God has forgiven me, so it really doesn't matter how I live. No, Paul, Paul is saying in this whole passage, avoid sin, flee from it, have nothing to do with it, it's awful, expose it, call it what it is. And so there's a balance here that we must maintain as believers. Knowing that you're light to the Lord, because of the Lord, in the Lord, and because you're light in the Lord, you want nothing to do with sin. Here's the balance we need. It's from our Confession of Faith, 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 15, and paragraph 5. It says this, There is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. It's a beautiful balance. Sin and all that goes on in the darkness is that bad and that terrible. And grace and all that Christ died to give light to is that free and is that available. Just as there is no sin so small that it deserves damnation, eternal condemnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring condemnation on those who are truly in faith and repentance. If you live your life in light of those two balancing truths, you will shine your light before others. And they will see what you're doing in the Lord, and they will give glory to the Father who's in heaven one way or another. And when we live in this truth, we're able to pick ourselves up when we fail without destroying ourselves and hating ourselves for the next ten years. We can walk in such a way that the Eichmann that was in you will no longer be in you. He will be put to death because he's the old self. But you will be in the light and produce the bountiful fruit that is good and right and true, exposing darkness wherever you walk because you are a light shining the glory of God and all that he does inside the believer throughout eternity.